Spurs in full cry here. Hello everybody, my name is Nathan and I edit and master this podcast. Uh, what follows is a conversation between Windy and Alex Benham, who we've had on the podcast before, back in May. Uh, Alex is a scholar at the University of Oxford. Uh, he studies uh, pandemics historically. He's also a founding member of the Transnational Research Collective Out of the Woods, uh, they are going to talk, as they did before, revisiting the previous conversation uh, with how things are now on the coronavirus. Uh, if you are sick to death of hearing about the coronavirus, if you are personally affected and uncomfortable listening to issues about the coronavirus, or if you believe that science is a liberal myth concocted to control our brains, you will find that this episode is not for you. It's a very long conversation, so I'm going to split it into two parts. Please enjoy. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch, another bonus episode of The Extra Inch. My name's Windy, and I'm joined by a familiar face or voice to you in Alex Benham, who is a public health researcher and PhD candidate at Oxford University. Alex, how the devil have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, I mean, it's been a bit devilish, to be honest, Chris, like, uh, or, or perhaps even a bit hellish at moments, but I'm mm-hmm. getting through it. It's been um, quite difficult personally at points, and uh, yeah, there's been uh, a degree of, yeah, it all becomes a lot more personal, I think, with these with these pandemics as they play out. What was once a, a statistic quickly becomes someone like you know, or someone who's sort of close to you. So yeah, no, it, it all becomes a bit more real, but yeah, I think it's only made me more keen to like, to like talk about this and to help other people understand it. So yeah, whatever I can do. And if that's, if that's doing this, then I'm, I'm super up for that. So yeah, delighted to talk to you again. Awesome. And we're delighted to have you back and have your expertise at our fingertips. Um, I, I completely agree, by the way, that this suddenly, this horrible, horrible virus and horrible situation really kind of um, take on a new life when it affects you personally, uh, which go- kind of goes against what you see on, on Twitter, where people are sort of claiming, genuinely claiming that there is no second wave. And some people are even claiming that there's no coronavirus and it's all <laughs> some kind of big scam. Uh, how do you feel when you see those kind of things going through social media? I mean, there's no real words for it, are there? Like, it's... It's so like offensive and yeah. sad and like you can kind of understand why some people want to deny this, like people who are in a very vulnerable position, people who are like having to go to work every day who have no choice about it. I have some sympathy for those kind of people who, who just don't want to have to face up to the awful risk that they're taking. I have absolutely no time or respect for people who want other people to take those risks for them and don't want any kind of protections for the vast majority of us. And yeah, I think I have only contempt for the people who are cynically trying to Mm. spread misinformation about a pandemic that has already claimed thousands of lives and is sadly going to claim thousands more before we get any kind of uh, escape from it. 
Indeed, indeed. So we're, I mean, we're off to a pretty morbid start, uh, <laughs> and, and listeners, it, it's probably going to carry on this way. So uh, if this is going to trigger you, I would say, I would say, do switch off now and, and move on to the next football podcast, which will be very uplifting, I'm sure, because Spurs are great. Um, before we get into this in some detail, Alex, there will doubtless be some new listeners who have joined us since you were last on who haven't heard from you before. Um, could you sort of give us a reminder of your credentials? Absolutely. So uh, I'm a Grand Union DPhil scholar in the School of Geography and the Environment at the University of Oxford. And my research is on the British state's response to infectious diseases in the past. Um, so particularly to the plague, tuberculosis and HIV. But obviously, as I was doing this research, this pandemic enfolded the country in which I'm living in, in, in England. So yeah, uh, I've sort of tried to adapt and, and be useful to people in this in this current context. So yeah, that's how I ended up talking to you guys first about coronavirus. Amazing. Uh, we last recorded, I believe it was back in May. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of times to pass then, but I don't really feel like a, a great deal has actually moved forward or changed. I mean, perhaps a vaccine is closer to being released. We'll, we'll, I guess we'll find out about that in uh, in the coming weeks and months. But uh, let's start with Britain's response to COVID nineteen. Last time we spoke about the public health messaging and the impact of the move from stay at home to stay alert, stay alert, which feels that feels like years ago. It feels like decades ago. Um, And we spoke about the the Cummings controversy. Since then, we've had hands, face, space and that horrendous infographic, which kind of was very difficult to understand. Uh, We've also had local lockdowns. We've had Sage pushing for a circuit breaker. And now we're at the time of recording. We're right at the start of lockdown two. I'm putting you on the spot somewhat, Alex. Do you have any thoughts about the sort of handling of this so far generally? Yeah. uh, Where to start about this? I think like there was a question I saw on the on the sheet about hindsight. I think it was. What was the? Yeah. Was it Michael Kellner who asked about this? Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting. Boris Johnson constantly refers to Keir Starmer now as Captain Hindsight. They they do love something to sort of hang on to, and that's the thing he keeps going back to, um, you know, implying that it's very easy to have these strong opinions after the event, but what would you have done at the time? Um, and Michael Kellner tweeted us, he said, if Alex were in charge, what measures would he put in place to stem the spread of COVID, and how does it compare to what the government is doing? So I think where I'd start with all of this is this idea of hindsight. And it's interesting that Johnson wants to talk about hindsight when every informed person had the foresight to see this disaster coming for months. Uh, This second lockdown is the consequence of exactly the same failings that brought about the first one. There was an initial period of denial followed by a protracted series of delays, all driven by a desire to prioritise the health of the economy over that of the people who work within it. And if you want to see how precisely that matches up to the problems that produced the first lockdown i'm literally quoting myself from the podcast that we did on the 29th of may um so in fact this approach has proved to be just as much of a disaster for the economy as it has been for public health uh the uk has some of the greatest excess death rates and economic damage of anywhere in the world in the second quarter of 2020 the uk's gdp fell by 20 percent or around 143 billion dollars according to the oecd For comparison, South Korea, which rapidly suppressed the virus through a smart system of test, trace, isolate and support, experienced only a 3% drop in GDP with only two short local lockdowns. So as you mentioned, Chris, the official SAGE uh, recommended a short circuit breaker lockdown on the 21st of September, but Johnson denied and delayed until the 5th of November. 
We could have saved thousands of lives, prevented vast amounts of unnecessary suffering, but the government simply chose not to, just as it chose not to in March. I was on the independent stage call at 1.30 today, and Kit Yates noted that there were more hospital additions for COVID-19 yesterday, uh, 1,246, than we had when we went into the first lockdown on the 23rd of March, which was 1,128. In three weeks' time, some of these people will sadly die, and nothing will actually really change that now. Uh, This is an entirely predictable and entirely preventable catastrophe. So, what should be done? And I think this is really the question that we should be asking if we accept that this is already a disaster. The question comes, what should we do to get out of it? Thankfully, I don't need to come up with a solution because Independent Sage, which is a group of autonomous epidemiologists, mathematicians, social scientists and other experts, have already done so. Indie Sage say that a lockdown is not a cure, it's a breathing space. It gives us time to come up with a solution to ensure that this is the last lockdown that we don't just end up in an endless cycle of release and lockdown, release and lockdown. So to do this, we need to move away from the blunt instrument of national lockdowns and towards the precise instrument of find, test, trace, isolate and support. So in England, we need to get rid of the failed private sector test and trace system, which has been a complete disaster, and replace it with one rooted in local areas and run by NHS England. This will enable a shoe leather approach to tracing, where local officials trace and physically visit contacts rather than the distant call centre system that has been such a complete failure in England. Once we have found people, we need to get them to isolate. So IndieSage reports that 82% of positive cases did not comply fully with self-isolation, although over 70% of people intended to. This is simply because people can't afford to lose their jobs, miss rent or give up caring responsibilities. Therefore, IndieSage argue that self-isolation should be replaced by supported isolation, with accommodation, domestic assistance and financial support of up to £800 per person. I think I'd add to this that we should also pay proper universal sick pay because the current system actively discourages people from self-isolating. IndieSage have also called for an immediate end to in-person teaching in universities and a massive intervention in schools to make them safe. This should not give us... this this should not give us like a, an immediate solution, but it will give us the framework to crush this wave and ensure there is not another one. This is an exit strategy from the lockdown, which the government at the moment simply do not have. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, you make it sound easy. The, the other thing I would add, which we, we failed to do from the start, is stop allowing the virus to come back into the country through people arriving in the country from abroad and stop us sending the virus to other countries you know we need to lock down the borders basically that would not not forever just for just for a short time just to stop the virus coming back in whilst we get on top of it but yeah um the the, the, and, the sorry go on and i'd say on that i mean it it doesn't even need to be a case of locking down the border it would it should be more than enough that if we have a proper system of yeah. of testing and then self-isolating when people enter the country people should still be able to come and go as long as we are on a, a proper as it has been in south korea a proper footing of ensuring that people are tested and that there is a tracing structure and proper self-supported isolation when people come yeah. and go yeah i mean it's been what eight months and just the odd 12 billion pounds and we still yeah. haven't got a, a test tracing absolutely isolate system absolutely. it's it's, it's is quite shocking. Um, some specific questions. So Paul Watson says, were local lockdowns given enough time? There were some signs of improvement in Greater Manchester, for example. What do you think to that one? 
So this is a really good question from Paul and one that I've been like, I've tried, I've tried to turn it over in my head today and I wasn't really getting anywhere with it until the Sage call at 1.30 this afternoon. Um, so I'm going to, again, quote just directly from Kit Yates's um, analysis on that call. So it seems from the data that we have at the moment that the Tier 3 Plus in Liverpool may actually have had some effect. Um, cases in Liverpool started to fall week on week around roughly the 11th of October and they went into Tier 3 on the 13th of October. So it does seem that there was a fall that was already happening when they went into Tier 3, which may suggest that it was behavioural change that actually started to decrease. Uh, so people going out less, uh, doing more social distancing, improving their mass discipline, those kind of things can have an impact. The restrictions, if anything, do seem to have ensured a continued decline. Um, the Tier 3 in Manchester also seems to have had some sort of flattening effect. So there is some data to suggest that there were some signs of improvement, as, as Paul Watson says. The problem, of course, is that cases were rising all over the country and were growing rapidly in lots of tier one regions. The problem with local lockdowns is they simply can't contain a nationwide outbreak, especially without any kind of functional find, test, trace, isolate and support to the program. And I'm afraid I'm just going to be repeating that phrase ad nauseum, ad infinitum in this, because it really <laughs> is the crux of everything. But yeah, I think that's why the local lockdowns were doomed to failure, because they were local solutions to a national problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Simon Toms, he asks, does Alex think this lockdown goes far enough? He, he adds, or is it too little too late? Then also, what are his thoughts around testing and track and trace? Okay, so I think the first thing I'd say about lockdown from the get-go is that like no one wants a lockdown. Lockdowns are a nightmare. They're incredibly destructive. They have all kinds mm-hmm. of social effects that I'm particularly concerned with. Um, but they also have a lot of economic effects. They're going to be very bad for people. This is something that nobody wanted. It's something you you arrive at as a result of failures. Um, so I think the characterization of people as sort of pro-lockdown, um, which <laughs> some people have said about me, is is really is really untrue and unfair because the whole point of what people like myself are trying to advocate is a system where we never need to go into lockdown again. Mm-hmm. The reason we go into lockdowns is because of the anti-lockdown people mm-hmm. uh, who are not just anti-lockdown, but anti-testing, anti-tracing, anti-supported isolation. Um, that's the problem. I think I've probably already said enough about test and trace at the moment, it's it doesn't work. I think everyone knows that. I don't really want to get bogged down in that. If anyone's interested in the like real data or some proper analysis on that, I would really recommend Independent Sages' reports on it. They've done a lot of work on it. It's extremely convincing. Um, go and find that online. The only thing I'd add on this subject of whether the lockdown is going far enough is on the question of schools, um, which are probably the biggest unknown in all of this. In Northern Ireland, they're obviously in a circuit breaker at the moment. They closed all schools for two weeks, and that seems to have been very successful in a sh- in producing a sharp decline in cases. Um, the ONS data and IndySage both believe that schools are playing a large part in contributing to the spread of the, of the virus. My personal opinion is probably that we should close all schools for two weeks now and focus in that time, on taking over unused space to hold classes in, funding the installation of proper ventilation in all classrooms, and recruiting extra teachers so we have a safe and equitable, which is really crucial, an equitable online-offline hybrid system for when students return. Um, I think schools are incredibly important, and I'm like very worried about the idea of just removing kids from them entirely 
indefinitely because this lockdown could come for a long time. But I also think that they are very dangerous at the moment, and I think they are driving infections across the country. Mm, mm. It's so interesting to hear you speak about this. There's so many thoughts that have uh, been through my head as well, but you're obviously so much more informed. I think what you're saying is there's a lot of doom, but there are some ways to wrap there, some ways to fix Absolutely. this, and, and that's the thing that I find encouraging. I always find the same thing, Chris. Like I feel depressed and demotivated when I only read about the scale of the problem. But I think the scale of the problem can also lead people to think that the only solutions are miracle drugs and sort of miraculous interventions by science. Whereas, in fact, it's really simple. Like The solutions are really simple. We have all the technology we need already to get to zero COVID. Um, the vaccine is obviously the eventual solution. That's what we're going to have to wait for. But we don't need to suffer between now and then. There's no inevitability to deaths or cases. We can get the infection rate down to nothing just with the technology and the strategies that we already have. It's just a question of going about it in the right way. And that's what mm, the government has mm. completely failed on. I've been reading um, Debbie Sridhar for, for months on all this stuff and uh, and now gladly seeing her appear on, on the BBC. Yeah. I mean, it was, what was interesting was when uh, Boris Johnson delayed that press conference uh, to announce lockdown two, uh, the, the BBC replayed a, a Debbie Sridhar segment. Mm. Uh, and I was really glad of that because... She speaks so much sense, and Absolutely. the fact that she was on when the government were meant to be on meant yeah. that hopefully she'd have had a really big audience, um, which was very pleasing. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I think that's the thing, right? The expertise is already there. We have all of the knowledge. We have all of the intent. It's just a question of just of, of being allowed to get down to this work. All of these people are desperate to get going. They just want to yeah. be to be let loose on this on this problem so that they can get about solving it. Uh, it's just so frustrating that the government isn't letting them do so. Uh, uh, on the Sage call, on the Indy, on the Indy Sage conference call today, um, George Monbiot was saying that he'd been contacted by a lot of ex-clinicians who'd been volunteering, trying to volunteer to help the government that had been completely stonewalled. And he was saying it just seems to sum up the, sum up the situation we're in in the UK. We have mm. so many people volunteering their time and energy for almost nothing and the government just constantly turns them away but yeah we have everything we need to get out of this already we just aren't using it anymore. i've got two more things alex before we finally get onto football um firstly there's been a lot of chatter about the false positive tests and you were really well informed about the testing when we spoke before do you have is there anything new you can tell us about the testing process so i can kind of I think it might actually be interesting to go about this via a quick detour into football because I was actually mm-hmm. on a conference call a few weeks ago with Mark Gillett, who is the Premier League's medical advisor and a key person for developing the return to play protocols, and with James Calder, who is the government's lead advisor on COVID-19 testing in sports. And of course, I didn't get to ask any questions, but I managed to hear what they say. And I learned a whole load of things that weren't public at the time and may still not be public now so I'm going to tell you anyway but um, firstly Gillette admitted that there had been huge doubts and anxieties within all stakeholder groups about the return to play and that a panel of UK epidemiology and virology experts told him it was not possible and 
more extraordinary that an eminent clinical negligence QC told him directly that the whole endeavour was unadvisable from a legal position. So I don't think that's hit the press in any way. It's not a secret. Like, we're not going to get in trouble for talking about it. Um, He was talking pretty much publicly and on the record. But uh, yeah, I think that's been missed. But this was the chief medical advisor of the Premier League admitting that basically everyone had told the league not to do it and they did it anyway. Um, but yeah, he also talked about how the entire commercial world has a medical has a magical solution uh, for testing in sport and he denounced most of the people who'd approached him as snake oil salesmen for Big Pharma, mm. which was very interesting. So he was very critical of all of the commercial options that were offered to him because he obviously, as the Premier League's medical advisor who was trying to devise the return to play protocols, was offered all kinds of tests and um, treatments. And it's interesting how critical he was of all of those. But yeah, it's all very ironic because this kind of confirmed exactly what I was worried about. But the reason I mention all of this here is both Gillett and Calder were obsessed with the real bugbear of false positives, which they both were talking about a lot in the in the call, and which they think are unnecessarily removing players from play which is, I think, really interesting and illustrative about the return to play protocols, because I don't think false positives are a large problem at all. They are perhaps between 0.8% and 4% of tests of people who really don't have the virus. It's, I think, a very small problem and has been massively overestimated by the media in an attempt to prevent this as a case epidemic, which is just a nightmarish narrative you know at first like a couple of months like a month or two ago we were talking about a case epidemic and then as the weeks went by that became oh it's just hospitalizations we don't need to worry about hospitalizations and now inevitably three or four weeks later we've got to the point where more people are dying and it's it's at what point you want to make an intervention but i think the false positive narrative was kind of uh, an attempt to make out that we were just finding more cases because we were testing whereas actually it was nothing of the sort but it's interesting that this is a real concern in the Premier League. I get the strong feeling that they are far more concerned about false positives than false negatives, which they never once mentioned on this call. How fascinating. Um, one more, and then we really will get into the nitty gritty on the football side. Uh, and, and this is, you might not have an answer for this, but it, you've, you've done loads of research over the years on various pandemics in history. Is this still following the pattern of Britain's response to pandemics generally? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like, in fact, the the quote that I read out at the start um, from the last podcast about denials and delays um, is actually from when I was talking about the plague and Spanish flu. (laughs) At that point in the podcast, I was trying to relate that to coronavirus. But yeah, the denial and delays I was actually talking about directly in that quote were about the plague, about Spanish flu. We are exactly matching what happened before, uh, especially with Spanish flu, where the first wave, we got through it. It was very destructive. Everyone tried to go back to normal under the instructions of the government. And then we got hit by the second wave and it was so much worse. Um, I'm hoping that this time with modern treatments, uh, with modern medical care, that we don't have as many deaths as at the peak of the last curve. That certainly seems to be the implementation 
application of the data that we have at the moment. It won't be quite as destructive as the first wave. But if we hadn't gone into this lockdown, I think we'd have ended up in a truly disastrous scenario. It's really interesting just to see history repeating itself. I'm sure, you know, as a historian, you'll find it does endlessly. Yes. (laughs) That's human nature, I guess. Um, Okay, right. Loads of football questions to get stuck into. Doz23, and I apologise for this one, for starting with this one, Alex. (laughs) He says, where did all of Alex's doom predictions about football restarting go? Specifically (laughs) that the Premier League club's COVID testing wasn't fit for purpose, yet has now been conclusively proven not to be the case at all and actually a huge success. And uh, equally, Tim Hopkins says, no shade intended, genuinely, but his predictions from his previous appearances didn't come to pass. What did he get wrong? So these are the questions that I, I probably unsurprisingly mostly, most wanted to respond to. And, um, <laughs> unfortunately, if people want a proper answer, it's going to take me a couple of minutes of explanation. So I apologise in advance if this is a bit long-winded or you aren't that interested in this stuff, but I want to explain why I made those predictions, why I don't think I've been proved wrong. And it comes down to a lot of quite detailed stuff about risk and the things that affect risk. So firstly, I'll respond to Tim's avowedly non-shady point about the general (laughs) predictions I made. Uh, On the first podcast we did together on the 15th of May, I talked about what I called the elephant in the room, which quote, which is there's going to be a second wave. And I think the idea that we just returned to normality from September is absurd. Next season is going to be a nightmare to finish. Next season is going to be harder to finish than this one. So that's what I said on the 15th of May. And you actually asked me, Chris, if my research gave me any indication of when a second wave would happen. And I said, I would be astounded if we got to winter without a second wave. And I guessed it would be somewhere after the start of October. Well, on the 12th of October, Boris Johnson declared that these figures are flashing at us like dashboard warnings in a passenger's jet and introduced the short-lived three-tier system to try and suppress the second wave. As the second wave spreads across Europe and cases within the general population increase, it's becoming harder and harder for elite football to prevent the virus moving from the public into the half-bubbles of players and staff. We are seeing lots of players test positive and games are being cancelled. So I think these two explicit predictions that I made do seem to have come to pass. Okay, now I want to answer Doz's question. So let's look at some of these doom predictions I supposedly made about (laughs) COVID-19 testing in the Premier League. So on the first podcast we did, before we knew which COVID-19 test the Premier League would actually use, I made three points about testing. One, that it was extremely likely there would be false negatives. Two, that false negatives meant asymptomatic players or pre-symptomatic players with COVID-19 would have the opportunity to spread the virus in its squads. Three, that this potentiality would be catastrophic, as the evidence points to serious long-term consequences of COVID-19, particularly to the respiratory and cardiovascular system, which would be life-altering and career-ending. Okay, on the second podcast, once we actually knew which test the Premier League would actually use, I made three more detailed points. One, that the RT-PCR test for COVID-19 has a fundamental weakness in that it relies on getting a large enough quantity of the virus on the swab for it to be detected. Two, that 67% of people who have coronavirus test positive on a PCR test, a sensitivity rate that gives a very high risk of false negatives. Three, that the extremely unpleasant nature of being swabbed for an RT-PCR test is a real problem and has led the Premier League to only collect swab samples from the front of the nose further limiting the quality of the sample. So, given those risks, 
I argued we should not restart football until we had suppressed the virus to the levels in Germany and introduced proper test and trace on a national level. Okay, so all of my particular concerns about the RT-PCR test have been entirely supported by scientific papers that have been published since I spoke in May. In June, Wallachin, Patel and Kesselheim published a paper on false negatives in the New England Journal of Medicine, the oldest and most widely respected peer-reviewed medical journal in the world. From a review of available studies, they concluded that the sensitivity of the RT-PCR test is probably 70%. They wrote, At this sensitivity level, with a pre-test probability of 50%, the post-test probability with a negative test would be 23%, far too high to safely assume someone is uninfected. In October, meanwhile, an article in the Journal of Infection cited research suggesting that nasal swabs of a positive case will only provide enough of the virus to test positive in 63% of cases. I have actually had a COVID test involving a nasal and throat swab, and it's extremely unpleasant. It really does feel like someone is trying to choke you. So I can personally attest to how unpleasant these tests are. Okay, so the RT-PCR test is clearly imperfect. Given this, why did we not see false positives in the Premier League and outbreaks in clubs resulting from them? Well, if you notice, all of my statements are about probabilities. I use the words extremely likely, opportunity, would, could. I was not talking about certainties. For the worst case, a serious outbreak at club to happen, you need a series of risks to materialise. Firstly, a member of the general public with COVID-19 needs to transmit the virus to one of the players or staff at a football club. Secondly, that member of the club then needs to go get a false negative test result on the test and to not develop symptoms. Thirdly, that case with a false negative result can then potentially infect other people in the club. Okay, we're getting there. (laughs) Stick with me. Now, the second and third risks did not change. The test did not magically become more sensitive and the risk of non-symptomatic spread did not decrease. What changed was the risk of infection from the general population. Now, I said very clearly that we shouldn't restart football until we had suppressed the virus. When we spoke on the 29th of May, we were recording several thousand new cases a day in Britain. But by the time football restarted on the 19th of June, this number had dropped to just over a thousand. This was not enough for Project Restart to be safe by any means, but it did decrease the risk of club members being infected from the general population. This, in turn, decreased the risk of outbreaks in clubs. Other than that, I think the Premier League basically got lucky. There will have been false negatives, but by chance, none of those false negatives infected enough people to cause an outbreak in a club. You are less likely to get shot when you play Russian roulette with one bullet rather than two, but I don't think that means you should carry on playing on the presumption that not getting shot makes it safe. So to demonstrate my point with a real-world example, let's look at another elite league that is using RT-PCR testing, uh, Serie A in Italy. On the 27th of September, Napoli played Genoa. Before the game, during routine testing, two Genoa players, just two, tested positive and were rapidly excluded from the squad. So far, so good. The game went ahead and Napoli hammered Genoa 6-0. The next day, Genoa announced that no less than 14 members of the matchday group had tested positive, including 10 players. This was the largest outbreak yet seen in an Italian football club. Subsequently, two Napoli players who had played in that game then tested positive, prompting local authorities to prevent the team from travelling Turin to play Juventus. Napoli had to forfeit the game and accept the 3-0 loss. This was all in the same week that the Premier League recorded its highest number of positive tests, 10, since the restart. What happened there? 
could happen here, especially as cases in the general population rise and add strain to the fragile barrier of PCR testing. So, in conclusion, I don't think that these were doom predictions, and I don't think that COVID testing has been proven to be fit for purpose just because it has so far been quite lucky. Obviously, it's not always going to lead to catastrophe. The problem, however, remains. And I think sooner or later, this is going to manifest itself. Um, it's just a question of luck. Wow. Take a, take a breath, Alex. I think <laughs> Doz and Tim have, have learned a valuable lesson there. And that is to never pick an argument with an academic because you simply <laughs> won't win. Unless you're an academic yourself, in which case, um, you know, lock no, yourself no, away in a room. I would disagree. I would say always pick fights with academics because sometimes you will win. But I think also to be prepared for the fact that we will spend far too much time preparing a counter response. <laughs> Amazing. Um, it's it's really interesting to hear everything you said then uh, in light of the numbers going up again now. And I'm just wondering whether we prepare ourselves. I mean, we might have timed this podcast perfectly in terms of uh, uh, you, you suddenly appearing to, to be absolutely spot on, Alex, because... If the numbers are going up in the general population, you expect um, greater risk to footballers, more chance of a, a, a major um, issue at a club, uh, and more chance of matches being cancelled. And then, you know, the, the, the worst case scenario for the Premier League's perspective, an, another another pause, um, which which feels based on what you've just said and the, the numbers going up in the general population, it feels quite likely. I apologise for pausing there. I promise it's not for dramatic effect. It's just that that was the only natural pause for several minutes around. And I do want to break this episode up into two slightly more consumable pieces with some breaks in between because it's obviously a very heavy subject um, and some pretty dense academic conversation. But I also think it's uh, a very important one. So I hope that if you have listened this far that you will pick this up in the second part. You've been listening to The Extra Inch. Thanks to Nathan A. Clark for production. Thanks to Bardi for being Italian. Thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork. Thanks to David Lindmer for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davy Shambles and his SoundCloud, D. Lindmer. Do check him out, he's great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help.